you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're looking at Galatians chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 4 through 7. By the way, if you are a guest with us, welcome. We're so glad that you are here. If you want to uh, do us a a big favor and fill out uh, a Connect card, uh, there should be a Connect card in the pew rack right in front of you. Um, There's also just some uh, sheets of paper there for you to take sermon notes with if if you want to do that, if you don't have a notebook. Um, Or you can get a Connect card on the the welcome table at the back of the sanctuary there. Um, But that's just a good way for us to get to know a little bit about you and and, uh, get to know how we might get you plugged into what God is doing here in our our church family. So we'd love to to connect with you through that particular means. Um, We are in Galatians 4. 4 through 7, we're continuing in this series that we call the Unbreakable Chains of Salvation. If you want to go to the next slide here, and uh, we're just slowly working through each of these links, which make up this, what we call this unbreakable chain. And, and the, the sort of base text that we are looking at for this series is Romans 8, 29, and 30. And there we see that uh, the uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's telling them about the, the glorious plans that God has for his people, for Christ to be the firstborn among many brothers. And he's, he's going to accomplish this uh, through his salvation project, this, this beautiful, unbreakable chain of foreknowing and predestining his people. And for those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And that is uh, the sort of base text for us because that is, uh, is telling us about this unbreakable chain. But we also find in this text that there are other links in the chain that maybe aren't explicitly mentioned there. Like, for example, when Paul says that Jesus is, the, is meant to be the firstborn among many brothers, uh, he's talking about our adoption there. Uh, maybe not very explicitly, but he's talking about Jesus Christ being our brother and thus God being our father. Um, and so we want to look at this, this doctrine of adoption in addition to these other uh, doctrines explicitly mentioned there. And uh, that's where we find ourselves this morning. So we've been looking at uh, God foreknowing us and predestining us, God calling and regenerating us, God converting us, God justifying us. And last week we looked at uh, justification, this, gr- this wonderful gift wherein God declares us righteous in Jesus Christ. He shares the perfect righteousness of Christ with us. And then based on that foundation of justifying us and declaring us righteous, God then moves toward us in what we call adoption. Um, and, and justification is the, the foundation for adoption, but um, adoption is, is a distinct gift in, in and of itself. And so we want to treat it uh, on its own this morning. And so we're looking at Galatians 4, uh, verses 4 through 7, which Paul writes here about the doctrine of adoption. And so if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word as we listen with reverence and joy to the word of our God. This is what the Apostle Paul writes of the church in Galatia, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we we pray that you would bless the reading and, and proclamation of your word by accompanying it with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit so that this doesn't just fall on deaf ears, but hearing ears, and, and that it would be like the seed of the word which falls on that fresh, fertile soil. Make our hearts that fresh, fertile soil to hear and believe and trust and to live in light of what Paul is talking about here in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. some time ago, I came across a story about a conversation that took place between a dad and his adopted son, and their family had adopted this little boy from, from Kazakhstan, and the little boy was growing up, and apparently he was at that particular stage and age where little boys like to ask the question, why, about everything, and so one day this, this dad and his son were outside playing, and And the dad says to his son, I love you, buddy. And uh, good dads will often randomly uh, and often tell their children that they love them. And this dad did that. He said, I love you, buddy. And as this dad did that, his son asked him, why? And the father responded to this by saying, because you're my son. And again, the little boy asked, why? And The father wrote about how this question struck him. He said this. He said, how do you answer that? Out of all the children in the world, why is he my son? I started to think about all the factors that had come together from the timing to the qualifications to the ups and downs and the days my wife and I were wondering if we could really do this. He says, I felt tears well up that my son didn't even know what was happening and was probably sorry he asked. And he goes on to say, I looked at this precious little boy and I said, because we wanted you, buddy, we came to get you. That's why you're my son. And really, that's the story of every, every adopted child, isn't it? The, the parents wanted them, so they went through all of the ups and downs, the timing, the qualifications, the days where they thought, can I really do this? Can we really do this? But at At the core, the parent wanted and desired that child to have them as their very own, and so they went and got them. And what's so amazing about these words is that they reflect a reality that is really at the core of the universe. All of history is actually telling the story of adoption. God created us, men and women, to be his children to know him and to be known by him, but instead we ran away to live as orphans and slaves. We rejected God's kindness. We rejected loving fellowship with him to live as slaves and orphans, but even in the midst of all this, we always long to hear that that voice of acceptance and affection and approval, and we search for it everywhere in the weak and worthless things of this world. We search for it everywhere else but God. But God, in his infinitely enormous and extravagant grace, foreknew us before the foundation of the world. And he moved 
toward us in Jesus Christ. And now in Christ, we hear that voice, that voice of God, that voice saying, I wanted you. I wanted you, I want you, so I came to get you, and now you are mine, and I am yours forevermore. That's the story that history is telling, the story of God taking orphan slaves and making us his children in Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, the doctrine of adoption, spiritual adoption. Our big idea this morning is that in Christ, God adopts us as his very own children. In Christ, God adopts us as his very own children. We're going to unpack that by looking at the process of adoption, the experience of adoption, and the privilege of adoption. Verses 4 and 5 tell us about the process, the process that God went through to adopt us. And verses, uh, verse 6 tells us about the experience of those who are adopted. And then verse 7 tells us about the privilege of those who are adopted. But first we see the, the process of adoption in verses four and five. And in these verses, we're hit with the reality that, that this has been God's plan all along. Remember, God foreknew us before the foundation of the world. He foreknew us. He planned to adopt his people as his very own children. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 5, that in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself uh, as sons through Jesus Christ. But then in our text here, we see how God enacted that plan, how he executed that plan to adopt us, what he did to accomplish that plan. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So God, in order to accomplish his plan of adopting us, sent forth his son. And, and of course, this concerns what we call the, the incarnation. This might be uh, what we consider a Christmas text in some ways. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, was sent into the world. Uh, and, and he took on flesh. He took upon himself our humanity. He was born un, of woman like we are. He was born under the law like we are. Remember last week we talked about how all of us, uh, Jew, Gentile, male, female, everyone is born under the law, which is a problem because the law, when you're under it, condemns you and reveals that you are a sinner. Or to use Paul's analogy in Galatians here, the law makes us slaves. We are those who are constantly trying to earn our okayness in life through being good people by meeting our own expectations or the expectations of others. Or, or even we can be slaves in a religious way if we treat God's law as the way to earn our okayness in life. But whatever it is, we're constantly falling short. We're constantly hypocritical, enslaved, condemned, unfree. But Jesus didn't fall short. He was born under the law, but he perfectly kept God's law and thought, word and deed, he always thought and felt the right things. He always said the right things. He always did the right things. His deeds were always perfect. He was perfect. And yet, as the only perfectly righteous human being, he went to the cross to die the death that we deserve. He went to the cross to die the death of a slave condemned by God's law. And so remember the, the great exchange that we talked about last week. Jesus takes on our sin and the punishment that we deserve for it on the cross. And in exchange, 
He gives us his perfect and pristine righteousness. And we wear it like a cloak. We're covered in Christ's perfect righteousness so that God declares us righteous. Perfectly, pristinely righteous. But then he actually shares with us more than, more than just his righteousness. He shares with us more than just his righteousness. His righteousness is not all that he gives us. He shares with us his position as a son as well. He not only accomplishes our justification, but our adoption as well. And of course, of course, the process of adoption is, is typically very costly. If you've ever seen this process up close, you've seen it to be true. It's financially costly. But then even more than that, it's, it's just costly in, in other ways as well. It takes planning and sacrifice and self-giving and so much more. It interrupts your life and it messes up your life in the best way. And our God has paid a cost for our adoption. He has paid the cost completely. He has paid a high cost for the sake of adopting us in the cross of Christ. But adopting us is what he's done. The divine word of approval that God the Father speaks over Jesus Christ is spoken over us when we trust in him. That's the reality that Paul's speaking of when he says that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Well, last week, in addressing the, the doctrine of justification, we, we uh, spent much time uh, talking about ourselves, thinking about ourselves uh, in, in a court of law, uh, which is appropriate. God is judge, and our justification relates to him as a judge. Uh, when considering justification, we would do well to, to imagine ourselves in a courtroom with God being the judge with a robe and a gavel and, and us being on trial there. And, 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 and the wonderful thing is that God justifies us in that courtroom when we trust in Jesus. When we admit our guilt in God's courtroom and cast ourselves on Jesus, Jesus comes forward and says, they are guilty, but I've paid it all. I took all their fines. All their crimes have been credited to my account and I was punished for it. And now all of my righteousness is credited to them. And then at that point, God the Father swings the gavel down and he says, righteous. I declare you righteous. But then what's more, is, is, it's even more astounding, is that as court comes to a close, God the Father comes down off the bench with adoption papers. And he says the most astounding thing. He says, in addition to your guilt being taken away and your sin atoned for, you're now my child. You're coming home with me. I completely adore you. You're my child forevermore. Everything I have is yours. And oh yeah, you're going to live forever. That's the best news. That's the best news. That's what he's done for you. That's who he is for you. That's who you are for him when you trust in Christ. So I don't even know how to adequately explain this. Seriously, I don't even know what to say. It's just the best news. I, I, the eternity will not exhaust the marvels of this gift. It's true. But then I wonder, I wonder though, I wonder if for some of us this doesn't actually sound like the best news immediately when we hear it. It's, it is whether we realize it or not. But, but I know that for some of us, for some of us, when we start thinking about fatherhood and sonship and all these various things, there's, there are wounds there. There are wounds there. 
Now, I've actually been, been studying a bit recently on the subject of fatherhood and the vital importance of it and the unique contributions that father make, fathers make in their children's lives. And, 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 and we might say that there's no one human being who makes a more vital impact on a person's life than their father, for better or for worse. And because of the weightiness that this relationship carries, the capacity for wounds in this relationship is all the greater. If we have absent or bad fathers, which is far too often the case, there can be gnawing wounds in our hearts. There can be gaping holes in our lives. And this affects today the way that some Christians and, and, and theologians and, and, and pastors approach the subject of adoption, our relationship with God as Father. And one of the very common approaches to this, to this subject is just to avoid it entirely. The, the reasoning kind of goes like this. It says, well, in, in a world where family structures are often falling apart, where people are often walking around with, with deep father wounds, it's best to avoid the biblical teaching on this subject of adoption, our relationship to, to God as Father. And you know, I, I, I just have to say, if you have those deep father wounds, if this doesn't sound immediately like good news to you because you grew up in a dad-deprived home or in a home where your, your dad was a poor excuse for a father, I, I'm, I'm sorry, that is not fair. It's not right. It's not right. My heart breaks when I hear people's stories wherein this is the case. But let me say this, for, for you and for all of us, for all of us, Knowing God as Father is the answer to the hunger and the aching and the longing that we have deep down in our souls from these wounds. The, 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 the way to healing for those wounds is in finding God as Father, knowing God as Father. And know this, God is not like any earthly father we might know. Even the best earthly fathers are but a, a shadow of the kind of father our heavenly father is. You know, Dane Ortland hit the nail on the head, I, I think, when he wrote this in his wonderful little book, Gentle and Lowly. He said, some of us have, have had great dads growing up. Others of us were horribly mistreated or abandoned by them. Whatever the case, the good in our earthly dads is a faint pointer to the true goodness of our Heavenly Father, and the bad in our earthly dads is the photo-negative of who our Heavenly Father is. He is the Father of whom every human father is a shadow. So understand, God is the perfect epitome of what a father should be, and more. He's patient and kind. He's, he's generous and magnanimous. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He, he is strong and true and faithful. He will never leave you or forsake you. You are not strong enough to make him run away from you. He, he will provide you with everything you truly need. He will protect you from everything you truly need to be protected from. He will never mistreat you. He will never abuse you. He will never abandon you. He does discipline his children, but he does this because he loves us and he wants us to learn how life works best. That's what true discipline is. It's teaching someone how life works best. He wants to teach his children how life works best. That's why he disciplines his children. 
in appropriate ways. He's the kind of father of whom all the good in our earthly dads is but a faint pointer and of whom all the bad in our earthly dads is the photo negative. Please realize this is good news. This is good news. This is regardless of your experience, precisely what you need. You need to know God as father. It's the answer to the longing and the aching within your soul. It's true healing for the wounds that you've received. You need to know God as father. You need to understand the doctrine of adoption. This brings us next to the experience of adoption. And here we see that God has not only sent forth the son to accomplish our adoption, but he also sent forth the spirit, the same verb in the Greek. He sent the spirit into our hearts in relation to this doctrine of adoption. Verse 6, Paul talks about how God has sent the Spirit into our hearts in relation to this doctrine of adoption. Verse 6, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. So what Paul is saying here is that based on our newly given identity as sons, God has given us the presence of the Holy Spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is just the Aramaic word for Father. And uh, we cry, Abba, Father. What he's saying is that he has sent, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Holy Spirit into our hearts to confirm to us that we are God's adopted children, that we have been given this new status and identity as sons. Uh, One commentator said that God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his Son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son so that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his spirit that we might have an experience of it. You see, what Paul is saying here is that God not only wanted to give us the status and identity of of sonship through Christ's work, but by the spirit's presence, he also wants to give us a sense of our identity and status as sons. He sent the spirit so that we would be conscious, that we would be experientially aware of our sonship. He sent the Spirit so that deep down in our own spirits, on a primal level, we would be aware that we are not alone, that we are not abandoned, but that we have a Father who is always there for us, always present, always for us, and that we belong to Him no matter what. Now, Paul put it best when in Romans 8, 15 and 16 when he said this, echoing our text. He said, you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then he explains what he means by that by saying this. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are our witness, our spirits, are, are, are told on an experiential level that we are God's beloved children. Uh, you know, Russell Moore, he tells a story that, that illustrates this from, from when his family was going through the process of adopting his now two sons. And he writes about that event saying this. He says, the creepiest sound I've ever heard was nothing at all. He said, my wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. 
The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although at times we stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. He goes on saying, I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? This place is filled with babies. He says, both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats, slats gently bumping up against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. The silence continued, he says. As we entered the boys' room, little Sergei, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Max, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like. But neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered, in silence. On the last day of our trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye. As by law, we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. And after hugging them and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. He says, little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew he had a father and mother now. You see, that's what Paul is talking about when he says that by the Spirit's presence, we cry out, Abba, Father. He's saying that God sent his Spirit into our hearts so that we might have a conscious awareness of our status and identity as God's children, if maybe for the first time so that we might approach him as such, so that we might cry out to him as such and live as such and be assured as such, so that we might have a conscious awareness of our privilege as God's own beloved children, as his heirs, which brings us next and last to the privilege of adoption. Paul concludes this paragraph in Galatians by saying this. He says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is, this is the, the concluding point of the paragraph. This is the point Paul was trying to make to the Galatians. They, they were not living like sons. They, they were living lives of legalism. They were not living lives like, like the sons God had declared them to be in Christ. They were living lives of legalism. They were trying to depend on the law and their obedience to it for their acceptance and approval before God which is what God already gives his people freely in Christ. Understand, legalism in Christianity is like trying to live as a slave in a house where you've already been declared to be a son. It's like God bringing you home from the prison house and you going back to your cell and draping the chains over yourself like you're a slave once again. This is just foolish. 
and dishonoring to God since he paid the high cost of sending his son and giving his spirit so that we might know full rights as God's beloved children. The rights which he won for us through Christ's work on the cross. And realize, this, this is why Paul here is actually exclusively using the word son. For some of you ladies, you might be wondering, why is he only talking about sons? Is he only talking about men and, and, and boys here being adopted as God's children? That's not what he's saying. If you go back to, to, to uh, Galatians 3, Paul talks about how there's no male or female in Christ, but all are heirs in Christ, all are sons in Christ, all are heirs in Christ. And in the Roman world, um, daughters were not heirs. The, the reason that he's not calling uh, us sons and daughters is because daughters were not heirs. Only sons, firstborn sons, received uh, full rights and in the inheritance that their fathers left for them. Sons alone were, were heirs in the Greco-Roman world. And so, in, in step with Paul's work in Galatians 3, he says that there's no male or female in Christ, but all are heirs through him. He's saying that you, men, women, who are in Christ, male and female, you have received adoption as sons. You've been given the position of being an heir in Christ. So he's saying that you are sons of God. You've been given the, the highest privilege that a human being can possibly be given. In adoption, Christians, male and female, are given the highest possible privilege and status that a human being can have in life, being heirs of God. I highly recommend reading J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. It's a wonderful book. But worth the weight in gold in this book is, is his chapter on adoption. There he writes this about the privilege of adoption. He says this, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers higher even than justification. That justification is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace within ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need justification more than we need anything else in the world. And this the gospel offers us before it offers anything else. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship and establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. Friends, we don't live in God's house as forgiven slaves. God, God did not orchestrate our salvation so that he would have a house full of obedient slaves. He orchestrated our salvation because he wanted sons. He wanted heirs. We live as those who have been given the highest possible privilege, the highest privilege of all. We live as those who are given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as Paul says in, in Ephesians 1.3. And, and, and realize the implications of this, Christian. There are numerous, innumerable implications of this, for this. This changes everything for us. 
Think about how this changes prayer for us. This means that prayer is not like a slave going to a fearful master with a petition. It's not even like a citizen in good standing going to a king. Prayer is a child going to their Abba, to their father, and their father listening to them and holding them in his arms. Think about what this means for when you sin, for when you sin, for when you really, really mess up. What do you do? Well, I I once heard the gospel uh, the, the gospel and legalism contrasted in this way. Someone said that, that legalism says when you've sinned, I've really messed up. I've got to hide this from my dad. The gospel, gospel Christianity says I've really messed up. I've got to call my dad. And, and what you realize when you realize this doctrine of adoption is that he's there waiting for you with his arms open wide. This, or, or more, in the parable of the prodigal son, think about what he, the, the father does in the parable of the prodigal son. He runs after his child and he kisses him and and begins kissing him even before he could get the words of confession out of his mouth. And he puts on him the best robe and he throws a party for his return. That's what confession looks like in light of this doctrine of adoption. Or think about the the implications of this, what, what this means for your security in the Christian life. When God welcomes someone as his child, he will never cast him out. And Packer makes this point in comparing God to, to earthly fathers. He says the very concept of adoption is itself a proof and guarantee of the preservation of the saints. For only bad fathers throw their sons out of the family, even under provocation. And God is not a bad father, but a good one. And think about what this means for, for your future and the final judgment. Think about what this means. When you face God on that day, you won't be facing him merely as a judge, Christian, but as a father, as a father who has given you full rights to everything he has, everything he owns. That's what a father gives to an heir, by the way, is everything they have, everything they own is granted to their heir. And that's what God gives us in this gift of adoption. That means that you can lay your head down at night, tonight even, you can lay your head down and rest assured that you're good with God. That if you die or Christ returns, when you stand before God, divine welcome is a certainty. You don't have to be anxious about it at all. You can rest your head at night knowing that you're good with God because of what he's done for us in this doctrine of adoption. So all of this and more is available to us. If we'll only trust in Christ and receive it. If we'll only collapse into his arms by faith, God gives us every right as his very own children, as his sons, as his heirs. And so part of what I want to consider this morning is, as we kind of turn the corner here is whether or not this is part of our experience as Christians. Is whether or not this is part of your experience as a Christian. Do you live your life with the kind of assurance the kind of confidence afforded to us in light of this doctrine. Listen, God wants you to experience, he wants you to know and to know that you know, he wants you to experience your status and privilege as sons before him. He he wants you to have a sense of it in measure now and in fullness in the age to come. He wants you to have a conscious awareness of your sonship. Remember Galatians 4, 6, 
Romans 8, 15 to 16. God wants your spirit to know something of your status as son by and through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to know that you are royalty, Christian. He wants you to know that you're a son of the king. He wants you to walk around with your head held high with a sense of assurance and confidence and courage and resilience based on who your father is. And of course, we need to remember that that experience in the Christian life is not a static thing. It's a dynamic thing. I want you to feel condemned because you're, you're, you're not experiencing the full assurance that we're talking about here. We can't base everything in the Christian life on subjective experience. We must remember that the foundation of the Christian life is based on the objective work of Christ, the objective promises in the Word of God. But still, we see here that God, He he doesn't want us to just have an objective knowledge of our assurance or of our position and status as sons. He wants us to feel it. He wants us to experience it. He wants us to have an experiential awareness of our status and privilege as his children. And so I ask you, are you experiencing this at some level? You know, sometimes you'll sense that assurance at a more, at a kind of lower level, and sometimes you'll sense it at a, at a, a more deeply and, and, and profound level. But you know, you can grow in experiencing it as you grow in the Christian life. You can grow in assurance, and you should be growing in assurance throughout the Christian life. You can grow in this just by pursuing the things of God throughout your life in prayer and in scripture and fellowship with other believers and in regular participation of the Lord's Supper and the like. But this begins with at least knowing that this assurance and confidence and experiential awareness of your sonship in Christ is indeed available to you. But then this also brings up an issue for some of us, doesn't it? What about when you don't feel it? What what about when you aren't experiencing it like at all? What about those times, those those moments, those seasons of the Christian life wherein you feel abandoned and alone and anxious and afraid and ashamed and guilty and lost and orphaned? Those, Those times come for all of us. We all feel that way at some point, at some level. It seems that it may come more often for some of us than others. But when those times do come, what do we do? And when those times come, we would do well to fight. We, we would do well to preach the truth to ourselves, to declare to ourselves the object of status and identity that we have as God's children based on the work of Christ whether we simply want to grow in this experiential awareness or if we feel we lack it altogether, we we need to do this. We need to fight. I'd like to to come back to that helpful resource by Jay Packer in in his book, Knowing God, this chapter on adoption. In that chapter, Packer says that there are six things that the Christian should tell themselves every single day. And I, I do, actually, I tell myself these six things Every single day, every morning, I wake up and I read my Bible and I pray and I begin by by confessing my sins to the Lord and then I rehearse these six truths to myself. And I and I tell you, I, I wholeheartedly believe that this has personally given me growth and assurance and confidence and resilience in my life and in my walk with Christ. And so I I commend it to you. 
Six things to tell yourself every single day, and particularly when you're in those moments of darkness and difficulty and depression. Here's what they are. God is my father. I am his child. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. My home is with God forever, and every day is one day closer. God is my father. I am his child. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. My home is with God forever, and every day is one day closer. You would do well to declare those truths to yourself every single day. Write it down where you'll see it. Speak it over yourself. Preach it to yourself. And and particularly when you feel alone and abandoned and afraid and anxious and ashamed. And listen, I've spent enough time with, with many of you to know that there is a whole lot of negative self-talk that goes on in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. There's a whole lot of negative self-talk that we engage in 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 a regular basis. And I I know that some of you just beat yourself up. You say horrendous things to yourself, things that that would make your blood boil if, if someone said them to a loved one or a family member, things that would make you so angry, but you say those things to yourself. Things like, I'm, I'm such an idiot. I'm such a, a loser. Things like, I, my, my, I'm, I'm a failure. I'm a piece of garbage. I, or or, or we, we can tend to catastrophize negative events in our lives or in this world. We, we say things like, I'll never change. My life is going nowhere. Everything in my world, in this world, is falling apart. And we just say these things to ourselves and we listen to these lies. Listen, Christian, the doctrine of adoption tells us that those things are not true. They're not what God has said about you. He has declared you to be his very own sons. He has given you a new identity. He has told you that you have, ha- you have a future, in a bright, the brightest future, actually. And what he says about you is the truest thing about you. What he says about you is the truest thing about you. And so for some of us, we need to change the scripts for much of our self-talk. We need to change our scripts from those self-condemning and hopeless kinds of words to what God's word says about us in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on, on spiritual depression, he said this, he said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening yourself instead of talking to yourself? And he goes on to, to advocate that, that we engage in biblical, gospel-centered, hope-filled, assurance-building self-talk. You see, in many ways, your self-talk, what you listen to, what you say to yourself, affects the way that you view reality. It frames the way you view reality. And so why not intentionally speak the truths of God's word and gospel to yourself to frame the way you see reality based on God's word? Because listen, what God's word says is true in ultimate reality. And what's more, what the doctrine of adoption shows us is that what he says is much kinder and much gentler than whatever self-condemning or hopeless words we might say to ourselves. This is the great Puritan writer, John Flavel, uh, said. He, some people call him Flavel Flav. Uh, but he, he once said that, uh, he once said, Remember that this God in whose hand are all creatures is your Father and is much more tender of you than you are or can be of yourself. So listen, this is not merely changing our our negative self-talk to positive self-talk. This is changing our negative self-talk to gospel self-talk. 
to biblical self-talk. Tell yourself the truths of God's word every single day. God is my father, I am his child. My savior is my brother, every Christian is my brother too. My home is with God forever and every day is one day closer. Listen, God wants you to know that you are his child. He wants you to know that you know. He wants you to have an experiential awareness of not just to possess the status of son. He wants you to be conscious of your status and privilege as his son. In Christ, God adopts us as his very own children. We've looked at the process, the experience, the privilege of adoption. I've tried to communicate something far greater than words can even comprehend or capture. I, I can't even talk to you about this in ways that, that, that do it justice. But if you've heard something this morning, if you heard something that your heart hungers for, why not reach out and take it? It's yours for the taking. If you're not a Christian and, 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 and you have heard this this morning, you know that your heart is hungry for this right now, just pray, say, I want this for myself. I don't want to be a slave. I want to be your beloved son. God, make me your beloved son. Or if you're a Christian and, and, and you want a, more, a deeper experience of the sonship you already possess, pray and ask God for it. Pray and tell him, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. Give me assurance. Help me to know that I'm your child. Help me to know that I know that I'm your child and that you're my father. And preach these truths to yourself every single day. God is my father. I am his child. My savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother too. My home is with God forever, and every day is one day closer. May God help us to believe this and seal it upon our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we, we need your help. We pray for those who, who are living as slaves this morning and, and who are listening. Would you give them the objective status and privilege of being your sons in Christ? then even for those who actually are living in this status and privilege of being your children, help them to know it. Help them to have an experiential awareness of it. Help them to grow in assurance. We pray that you would fill them with your spirit in a way that confirms this truth in their hearts so that they walk around with confidence and resilience and courage and assurance all the days of their lives with their heads held high knowing that their future is with you forever, that it's incredibly bright and that it's immutable, unchangeable because it's based on who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.